In this episode, we speak with Mark Roberge. Mark is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where he teaches sales, marketing, and entrepreneurship. He's also managing director at State Shoe Capital, a venture capital firm backed and run by go-to-market executives, helping startups build world-class go-to-market capabilities. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, using data technology and inbound selling to go from zero to 100 million. Prior to these roles, Mark served as SVP of Global Sales and Services at HubSpot, scaling revenue from zero to 100 million. Mark was ranked number 19 in Forbes' top 30 social sellers in the world. He's an MIT graduate and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, Inc. Magazine, Boston Globe, TechCrunch, Harvard Business Review, and other major publications for his entrepreneurial ventures. Real Life Superpowers Hey, Mark, how's it going? Um, Good, running. We're really intrigued about uh, the beginning of you know, what's called the end. So the middle of the story is, as a risk taker, you decided to jump on board to HubSpot, where there's actually you know, nothing uh, happening, which is a really big risk. And uh, you were here, there at the beginning. So how did you make that decision? And like, what happened before that to make that decision? Yeah, I think the decision to take big risks... That was already ingrained in my career, and I can talk about that. The decision to go to HubSpot was a bit serendipitous, which I've I've seen a pretty significant trend in in the good things that happen in my career and how serendipitous and unplanned they are, which has really changed my perspective on planning. Um, but you know, I, I started my career, you know, came out of school as an engineer, went to Accenture, big consulting firm, wrote code for two years. This is right at the end of the '90s, where Entrepreneurship was exploding in the U.S. and everywhere around the world. A couple of partners at Accenture left to start a mobile company, and I jumped with them and just never looked back. Loved the startup scene, loved the upside, loved the risk, loved the potential impact, loved the fast pace. It was just everything I was looking for in a career, and decided at that point I was an entrepreneur, which comes with risk. You know, it's just um, uh, you know you have a higher tolerance with it. And to be honest with you. This is also right around the time of the dot-com bust as well. And many people who are working at like um, Enron and Arthur Anderson and huge companies that like, you know, really got hit. I mean, you start to really wonder, are you really that safe at a big company too? Like, is it really that risky to go to a startup? And I, I just don't think it is. I mean, I talk to my students all the time. It's like an individual startup is risky, but if you pick a hot industry, and you get the company wrong, you usually have significantly increased your marketability and even stability if that's what you're choosing for. Like if you go into like blockchain and you pick the Ron startup and you're there for three years running marketing, doing sales, in engineering a product, and your company goes under, but blockchain explodes, like you're a hot commodity. All the companies that are growing I want to hire you because no one has experience in this and you have so much insight. So anyway, it's really changed my perspective on risk. Um, I ended up you know, going to MIT after that to kind of learn about entrepreneurship and, and solidify my place in the ecosystem. Started a social networking company myself that I raised a million dollars for, executed it for two years, um, didn't have success with that one. Dharmesh Shah was one of my investors. He's the co-founder of HubSpot. When I was sort of like, 
exiting or struggling with my company, uh, he and Brian Halligan, who'd, who'd come on as the co-founder at that point, um, recruited me to, to be full-time because I was selling for them and they thought I was doing a good job. And at the time, you're right. We were only three people. It was hugely risky. I had a baby. I had a pregnant wife. Um, I had a new mortgage. Like It was crazy. How did you decide to do it still? Well, it was honestly out of desperation. I mean, at that point, it was like I knew I wasn't going to get my next round of funding for my startup. I had to, I was the loan, you know, I, I had a hundred thousand dollars in loans from my business school. Um, I, again, I had a wife that wasn't working and, and a baby with another one coming a mortgage. I mean, it's pretty stressful. So I literally thought I was going to go have to go back to a big company, which would have been like soul crushing for me as a passion entrepreneur. And, you know, Brian and Darmesh didn't know this. I mean, they were just like, we're about to scale. We're about to raise our series A. You're doing a great job selling for us. Why don't you come sell and build the sales team? And I literally was just thinking, this is awesome. I can collect a paycheck for four months and get my feet under me. Hmm. And like 10 years later, we're ringing the bell on the New York Stock Exchange taking the thing public. So hmm. it was just, um, you know, to go into sales, to go to HubSpot was not anything I pursued. It was just what, I f what fell on my lap. And since then, to write a book, to join the, the faculty at Harvard Business School, to start a venture capital firm, none of those things were things that I pursued. They were things that landed on my lap. And they were some of the best things that I ever did in my career. So it's just, it's kind of funny that like, have a plan, but just like, be open-minded to the stuff that comes to you. You know what I mean? Because that, that can be really, you know, impactful stuff in your career. And how did you decide to start selling? Because you're saying that you were doing that straight out of college in your own company, but still. When I came out of undergrad, I was coding. When I went to the first startup in New York, do the mobile startup, I was on product. I did a little bit of like account management. When I started my own company, I was doing everything. And then when I went to HubSpot, like Darmesh first engaged with me when it was just him. I was a consultant to him just on like strategy and thinking. And then when he brought Brian in to co-found the business with him, Brian's a sales guy. He's like, hey, we got you one day a week. Um, you seem smart. Just sell. So that's how I got into sales was he, he just wanted customers. So I'm like, great. I need the paycheck. I'll sell. Weren't you afraid of the stigma? That definitely exists in like high-end business schools. Like it's like it's looked at as a blue-collar job. But like I was honestly torn. I, I, I knew in the entrepreneurial world I didn't want to be like a programmer. I just – I had done it. I had enough of foundation. I liked the revenue stuff more. But I was torn between marketing and selling during my business school journey. Like I loved marketing because it was more data-driven. It seemed like the world was heading more toward a marketing-driven world. But I loved selling because I liked the deals. I – I love the people interaction and, you know, they made good money too, uh, which is the provider that was important to me. So I was a little torn. And, you know, when Brian pushed me in that direction, it's just like, let's go. And it was cool because I was selling advanced marketing solutions. Yeah. So I was kind of like walking both lines of developing myself as a marketer, but also developing my skills as a seller. It sounds like you're, it was like, yeah. By mistake, it was a match made in heaven because you believed so much in the product, but you were selling something that actually was also something that you believed in because you needed it yourself and you saw the added value of that. Yeah, and Ronan, even more than that, the fact that like sales was going through a huge transformation that was favorable to a former engineer. You know, it was going from every sales team being this like outside sales team knocking on doors, selling million dollar deals, not data driven because no one used the CRM like has this magical mystic 
reputation to, for the first time, teams that are totally inside, dependent on the CRM, mm-hmm. dependent on data, dependent on process and science, all this stuff. And here I come in as a fresh slate with no sales background, but a very engineer mindset. It was just, who could have predicted that? Right. You know what I mean? It was just, it was such luck. But yeah. that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure yet, but I think you have really good decision-making skills. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, also, like, our audience could, could understand how you make those kinds of decisions. Let's say, like, you said, I'm sure. going to choose the blockchain industry, right? How, sure. What would you tell an entrepreneur to choose an industry by what factors? Well, there's a couple of things in the, in the decision-making. I mean, first off, like, you're asking me to evaluate an industry. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, uh, that's a tough one. You know, because when I went into school, I, I, nanotechnology was like a big hot thing. It never really went anywhere. Mobile took a long time to kick in and it eventually kicked in. I mean, I'm not sure I've got the best instincts there. Um, probably a little bit. I mean, when I evaluate companies, as an example, I put a lot of weight on customer value creation. So maybe there's something, something there is I do think a lot of investors... When, when I ask people, what's product market fit, 95% of the time, they talk about like people buying your product. And I think that's completely wrong. People buying your product is like your message and value prop is resonating. But like people seeing value from your product, that's product market fit. So I, maybe there's something there in terms of like what industry should you go at is like early signs that people are starting to see value from it. That's kind of what I look for when I, when I invest. But, you know, to be honest with you, I progressed in my career from a 22-year-old who had this 10-year plan and nothing could distract me from that to having, again, reflected on, you know, joining HubSpot, going to sales, writing a book, joining the faculty at HBS, starting a venture capital firm, none of which was planned. And now I'm just kind of like, I have a mission because of the gifts that I've been given to help entrepreneurs with revenue. That's the gift I've been given. And I want to I want to dramatically decrease the failure rate of startups through revenue best practices. So when HBS is like, yeah, hey, we need to do a sales class. We read your book. You know, can you build a sales class here? I'm like, geez, that's an amazing platform to do that goal. And when a, when a guy at Bestimer, one of the top venture capital firms is like, hey, we should start a venture capital firm that's running back by VPs of sales because it's missing from the, the investing community. I'm like, that's a huge idea. And, and, you know, I'm very blessed that I'm hit with like five ideas a day. You know, hey, join my company. Hey, invest in this. Hey, advise me here. Hey. And I'm like, I wish I could say yes to everything, but I can't, you know? And so, so I just have this extreme filter on like, I have a certain amount of time I can spend on work. My mission is to help entrepreneurs and I have to dedicate that time across platforms that will have the biggest impact. That's the way I think about it. And do you think that a business school is a, a significant part of a journey? that people should go to business school? I know it's tricky to ask you that uh, since you're sort of part of the system, but you're also yeah, you... part of a different system. And, you know, like there's so many opinions and I'm, I have to share something. Like mm-hmm. I so much leaned towards thinking that business school is the most impractical thing in the world and that <laughs> just, you know, like gain experience. And I understand that like, in the United States that it's something of a status symbol uh, and maybe also some sort of screening system. But I heard you lecture at a HubSpot conference and you were so practical and it sort of made me think that maybe these days business school has become 
practical and not sort of behind. Yeah, it's trying to. I mean, I think that was part of the reason why HBS wanted me to come over there. Um, so you would think I'd be super biased and like, yeah, go to business school because I, it really changed my life. Like MIT was huge for me and I'm on the faculty at Harvard Business School. But I, it's not for everyone. You know, it really isn't. Like, let's take entrepreneurship aside. Like, if you're in management consulting, you love management consulting, yeah, I don't think you really need to go to business school. Like, just stay there and become a partner. But if, but if you're in one trajectory and you want to, like, really change, because you went down the wrong path for a couple of years, that's a great venue. Okay, so that, that's great if you want to do a career change. I also probably wouldn't go to business school if you're going to the same tier, Right. So if you if you went to a tier two school for undergrad and you really only get into a tier two school for business school, I'd be hesitant. But if you can level up, if you got it, we went to a tier two undergrad and you had a great experience, you did well, you did well in the first couple of years in your work. And now you can go to a top five school that's probably going to have enormous impact on your career. OK. And your marketability. So I'd, I'd consider that now in entrepreneurship, like. If you're 22 and you start a business and you're CEO and you scale the thing to 20 million bucks, like you crushed it. I don't know if I'd do business school, but not everyone did that. You know, versus if you're an entrepreneur and you know you had you did a company and it was a success, but you were like a frontline person or you did one or two. Like it is a great way, especially in the U.S. to to have a first impression. When you're 28, there's not a lot you could have done, and that was huge for me with MIT. It was like without MIT. I wouldn't have gotten ninety percent of the investor just, um, meetings I did. So like, maybe I, the day of networking is is true. Do absolutely. Well, first off, there's a brand association with big top schools that like, huh? And it's it's validated. Like, not everyone can get into those schools. Like, they're like, that's probably a smart person. I should listen to what they're saying. So that's a big deal. The network is huge. Okay, from an entrepreneur standpoint. Now, the practical element, like. The schools are trying and they're getting there. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, the business school apps are down. Um, you know, HBS, MIT, Chicago, and Stanford are not affected right now, but other schools are dramatically. And I think it's because of like, you know, the misalignment between what's being taught and where students want to go. You know, largely business schools were built out of like getting people ready for management consulting careers and banking careers. And, you know, especially banking, like that stuff's declining a bit. And there's a huge rise in entrepreneurship, which re requires practicality. So the speech you saw me at HubSpot, my, my class is extremely practical. Um, I teach people to sell. I teach people to hire reps. And the great thing about HBS is they sell 30 million cases a year to other business schools. So like 80% of curriculums taught at other business schools is inspired and leverages what I build at HBS for sales. So that's a huge impact. Right. So hopefully I'm doing my part and my peers are doing our part to, you know, evolve the MBA to be continually relevant, including making it very practical for entrepreneurs. Right. I also liked your point about new pathways. It's like a reboot. So it's like I'm not yeah. sure the correct thought I had right now was right here. Let me let me find a different way of thinking for those people. It's uh, I like that. That's, that's smart. For sure. And from that situation, like. You were at a, a stage where the dot-com that we talked about before, but from early on, did you feel that your attributes were the people, person, sales attribute? 
Yeah. I mean, I think I always, if you look back at myself as say a teenager or early twenties, what was pretty unique about me was I was like into the real geeky stuff of like math and science and coding, but I was also like very personable. Which is real. You know I mean, like, yeah, that, that's just unique. I mean, it exists, but it was just one of my uniquenesses that as you looked across my peers, like there are people who were like super deep, you know, deep into the science, but they just were introverts and they had challenges connecting and communicating with people. And there were outgoing people who like had tons of street smarts, but like struggled with the deep science. Right. And so that's always something that I strive to do, you know, appreciate my uniqueness and how I can express that through the things that I do. So yes, I mean, there were certainly patterns of that in the early part of my, you know, my education. And when you, when you hire someone, the things that you learned or the characteristics that you have, how does that affect how you hire a salesperson or someone in business development? Not a ton. I mean, like that, I think that could, you could get into some scary situations where you're basically hiring people like you, which that is a huge trap in hiring that leads to underperformance and a lack of diversity uh, and group thing and lack of, you know, and a significant group thing, which can really kill businesses. When I hire, you know, I look very deeply at the tasks that the person needs to do. It sounds so obvious, but it's often overlooked in hiring managers at all levels. Um, a classic example, if we take sales, for example, people really overweight experience in your industry and underweight the specific sales tasks that need to happen. Right. So like they might just like, oh, we're looking for someone with five years of experience in, you know, uh, in blockchain. We go back to that example. And that's all they really look at. I mean, they could essentially hire the person from the resume. So why even do an interview? But at the end of the day, if I were interviewing that person, I would look at this blockchain company and be like, okay, they're selling to banks. They're million dollar deals. Um, it's going to require them to get feet in the door. They need to do like deep discovery and pain development and then coerce a decision-making unit to buy a thing and then get the thing through procurement. So I'm going to be di diving deep into their abilities and the sales skills on how to do that. And if there's a gap, I'm going to be looking heavily at their coachability to learn um, how to do it within our context. That's going to drive... And I would much rather take people from other industries besides blockchain who've done that and teach them the blockchain stuff than I would to grab like an underperforming blockchain rep just because they've been in the industry for five years. So that that's an example is like, I, I'm not trying to hire people like me. I'm trying to like be extremely analytical about what the raw talent skills behaviors are necessary for this role and how I can like creatively assess that efficiently within an interview process. So sort of like simulating how, how, the, how the job would be, imagining them. Exactly. And yeah, why well, say like, tell me about a time you did this. Like, screw that. Like, here's my company. What are you going to do? Like, let's do a role play of you selling my product. I don't know what your product does. Great. Here's 10 pages on my product. Go read it. Come back in a day and let's do it. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes like when you just ask yourself, how am I going to train this person when they join my company? Why wait for training? Let's just do it during the interview. Right. See how they do. So that's on a hiring perspective. And today you're also a VC, right? So does the same simulation work when you're thinking about who to invest in? Or is it from the impact point of view where you're saying, now my mission is to, to help entrepreneurs revenue-wise. 
Okay. Yeah. Is that more a majority of the aspect or is it the attributes as you hire people? Well, yeah, it's a tricky one because you're like, okay, I am trying to help entrepreneurs. However, as a venture capitalist, I have a bunch of investors in me, uh, part of which, a big part of which their promise is that I return a good return for them. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not running a consulting business. I'm not looking for problems to fix, right? I'm looking for exceptional investments. And, you know, it's just, I've never, I've never heard of or met a business, even like the future Atlassian, Zoom, Dropbox, Twilio, they had a lot of problems as they scaled. Right. Like there's never, ever been a business I know of who like they, they thought of an idea. They went out and talked to you about everyone loved it. They raised a ton of money. They started selling it. It flew off the shelves with no issues. They went public and it's crushing it. Like every business you talk to, there's always like huge issues. They almost ran out of money. Everyone was churning. Like, you know, so, so it's just like, if you're going, if you're out there looking for perfect businesses with no hair on them, it just doesn't exist, but you're just trying to understand which gaps or risks you're willing to take versus which you're not. Okay. So, so with our venture capital firm, we're backed and run by sales and marketing execs. So I'm not willing to take on product risk. Like I didn't build it for that. Right. So that's what I look heavily at is do they truly have a strong foundation of product market fit? And then what if, what steps have they taken to building the go to market side? Where are those gaps and how can we, you know, are we willing to take those on? All right. So the first place I'm starting, just this is unique to me in the stage I invest in, the types of business I invest at, is I look heavily at customer retention, um, churn, and customer value creation and, and product usage. That's what I look at first. And if there's gaps there, it's like they don't have product market fit. Like even if they're tripling revenue. Right? But isn't that something that you can actually maybe tap into and, act and sort of fix? We could, but like oftentimes, maybe it it depends. Like I have taken those on. And if I, if I look under the hood and basically there's certain pockets that are doing great and certain pockets that are not, then that's an, that's an ICP, an ideal customer profile issue. We got to align the sales, the MQL definition around it. We got to align the sales comp with it and we can fix it. And that, and that could be an amazing business. And that's a great investment opportunity because it looks like it's underperforming, but it really isn't through a quick fix and we can go. But if it's like, you just don't have those, I mean, that's kind of a restart on the product side. And my, my LPs and my backing is not in product management. So I don't, I don't want to take that one on. So, so that's kind of like a unique view that we have on the investor community is I do find that most investors over-index on top-line revenue growth, as do entrepreneurs. You're like, ask an entrepreneur, how's your company doing? First thing they say, revenue. Investor, first question they ask, how's your revenue growing? And we don't talk that much about retention, customer value creation, and product usage, right? So I would much rather, you know, of course, I, I love the businesses that are tripling revenue and have like 110% revenue retention. Amazing. But I'd much rather have, you know, 50% growth with 120% revenue retention than 300% growth and 50% revenue retention. Right. But the revenue question is sort of like the MIT answer. It's like you probably are getting, you know, so many companies. And why that want you to invest because you're also, you know, you're, you're an influencer. So mm-hmm. you have to somehow, you know, like if I'm looking, let's say, let's say I want money from your VCs, like yes. I would approach you 
would I have, like, what would be the right approach to you? Like, what would be intriguing to you? It's, it's very similar to the sales process, right? Like, when I go sell software to someone, the wrong thing to do, which unfortunately most sellers do, is they have their PowerPoint slides of 10 slides of what their business does and how much money they've raised and what their sales strategy is, et cetera. Sorry, this is, this is go, to a seller, to, to, to customers, like what the product does and other case studies. When you're selling to a customer, the best way to sell is to understand what their, what their goals, their challenges are and decide whether or not you're a good fit. And if you are, pitch it. And if you're not, walk away. It's the same thing with raising money. So like, just understand, like, you know, if you're a seed funded business developing your product, like I don't need the 30 minute pitch. You're not ready. Like that's not, not that against you. It's just, I pitched my investors at a certain stage. If you're doing 20 million in revenue, like it's too late. I don't, you're doing great. You're a growth investment opportunity. That's not where my business model is. Right. So if the first thing is just like, can you tell me about your fund and your investment thesis? Yeah, sure. We invest when you're between one and five million in revenue. And we look for exceptional customer retention. And we look for people who are scaling through a sales team. If you fit those three things, let's talk. It seems like you have sort of two very different hats. Because on the VC side, you have to be pretty strict and sort of make uh, harsh decisions uh, and be very judgmental. Uh, and then on a completely different angle, you're very much about empowering people and helping organizations scale and teaching them how to do that. And you're way more tolerant there. Like, do you find like there's some balance here? Mm, not really. I find it very circular, right? It's like, because I'm out there talking, I'm seeing tons of deals and I'm assessing deals and I'm, I'm, you know, we made 10 investments. So I get in deep with them and I know like where the problems are and what works. And I see my friends who are doing it too. And then I circle that back into the classroom, you know, where I, I let that drive theory that's more practical and I watch my students apply it. And then I circle that back into my public speaking where you saw me, Noah, to like generally speak to folks, which then attracts deal flow and starts the process. You know, so it's like a very, even though it's like, wow, this guy is a public speaker, he's a venture capitalist and, a, and an academic. It's like all the same. It's just like, that's just a job to me. That's like a circular job. In the same way a CEO hires people, manages people, manages the street, you know, does the, the public speaking. You know, it's just like, it's a circular, highly related job. Like mega inbound marketing for your VC at the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as an HBS, you know, faculty, I get at, like insider access to the best deal flow that's coming out of Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Wharton. Like that's pretty valuable to a venture capitalist. Did you like, you know, a lot of VCs are like, how can I get a faculty position at a top business school? You know what I mean? It's like, so it's all very circular. Did you close that circle? Did you like once upon a time educate someone to become, you know, not yet, not yet. Wait, wait, close it and why? Did I purposely try to drive with, it? Starting with, with educating. Yeah. And then yeah. at the end of the day, that startup you invested in. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's in the early sequences. Like we have policies against investing in our students, obviously. Like then you're given grades and it's weird. So I can't invest till after they graduate. Right. I have done that. We haven't done it through the fund yet just because it just hasn't happened. I did invest in students from two years ago that did quite well. And a lot of the stuff they use, I mean, they, they dramatically redirected their strategy based on my own coaching of them, both through the classroom as well as as an investor. I think that they'll do quite well. So, I mean, it's, it's gotten pretty close. It's gotten pretty close to closing that gap. And I have brought like tons of my own investment work 
into the classroom as cases. And what would you say your superpower is? I would say like pattern recognition across like a huge spectrum of data points and summarizing it in a way that's tailored to the audience I'm speaking to. Can I try? Because I think that practicality and simplicity, like taking complex decision and decision-making, like making it really simple to a go, no, go. Yeah. Synthesizing, sense-making. Yeah. I think that says a lot of it. It's like, but I think there's a piece that's tailored to my audience because I'm preparing for an exec ed class on Friday. And I I looked at the backgrounds of the 90 students and I have to teach them sales strategy. And I had to teach sales strategy to my MBAs two weeks ago. But like, that's two very different pitches. Like the, my MBAs are 27 year olds that have four years of experience in like various industries. And now I'm going to go teach a bunch of like 40 and 50 year olds who are like CEOs of large businesses. It's very different. It's something like that. It's like synthesizing and tailoring it to the audience. Right. And, and, and what would you say your kryptonite is? Saying no. We get that a uh, lot. Yeah, it's hard. And actually, believe it or not, this has been crushing, uh, conflict uh, avoidance. A little, it's a little rooted in my childhood, but it, it was a real uh, struggle for me as a leader because you can't like avoid conflict as a leader. You have to take it head on. You have to give negative feedback. And I, I think I evolved to be good at managing conflict and giving negative feedback, but it took a lot of effort, therapy, and coaching for me to get there. And it's still something like I just don't enjoy but I know it's necessary to perform. So that, that is a kryptonite. It's also definitely a sales-oriented feature, right? Yeah, I mean, as a seller, you're good at getting people to say yes, not, under, you know, if you're a CFO, you better be good at saying no, right? right? So it just depends like what your role is. I feel, I feel that on, uh, <laughs> on that side. I, I get you. And I have a question now. What would be your, your happy end game right now? If you would wish yourself in like 10 years, where would you want to see yourself? See, that kind of conflicts with my serendipitous lifestyle. But like, um, you know, I think I'm psyched to have had the opportunity at HBS and, you know, going into it, everyone's kind of like, is this dude for real? Is he going to perform? And I think now, like, you know, looking back, like, I think they're glad that I'm there. And it's just really awesome to see so many of my students go off and do great things based on stuff that was in classrooms. That's been like really rewarding. I think, you know, more recently, we've started the venture capital firm. And the big mission there is the failure rate of startups that raise a Series A round is 70%. And the failure rate for startups that raise a Series C round, much larger, longer, farther along, is also 70%. And so that says to me that like we, while we've progressed in our entrepreneur understanding, thanks to like lean startup and agile and all that kind of stuff in the early phases, we haven't progressed in how to scale. And so that's what I really want to impact is um, through Stage 2 Capital, my venture firm, as well as the related work at HBS and other places, I hope that I can make a dent in that, that like the failure rate as businesses scale, you know, move further declines because we've, we've, as entrepreneurs, have understood more science and process to how to scale. Which I think also your book uh, reflects very much. And I think... Uh it also can have that impact. And I really recommend anybody listening uh, who has any touch with business to read that book. Cool. Thanks, Noah. All the proceeds go to a nonprofit, um, build.org, which helps underprivileged kids through entrepreneurship. So thanks for that plug. Amazing. We'll we'll definitely add a link then. Cool. All right. So we want to be respectful of your time. We know you have to go. So thank you so much. And we wish you to actually achieve your end game. 
<laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks, folks, for helping. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Right. Take care. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.